You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, Of A Kind. This is how Of A Kind works. They work with a new designer to make something really cool and unique. They sell it on their site, but they also tell the story behind the maker and the things that they make. Fans of the long-form deep dive will definitely appreciate it. Uh, they've got all kinds of stuff from home to beauty, fashion, jewelry. Uh, it's all kinds of unique stuff that you can't find anywhere else. I've found that it makes a very good gift. Uh, you can check it out at ofakind.com slash longform. If you put in code longform, you get 20% off an order of $50 or more before October 15th. Again, ofakind.com slash longform. Here's the show. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Aaron Lammer of Longform. With me is Evan Ratliff of The Atavist. Hey, Aaron. Is this the first time we've ever done an intro together? It might be the first time we've ever done an intro together, although we should check the archives before we uh, maybe some, start uh, to make that maybe claim. Maybe some uh, Longform completists uh, can let us know about that one. Uh, but Max is on a very well-deserved vacation. Uh, we don't. We don't really know how to. D- we walked into here and didn't even really know what we were supposed to do. Come Did, back, Max. Come back. Come back, please. Uh, Aaron, who did you have on the show this week? I talked to Ellen Berry, who was, until recently, the New York Times Bureau Chief for South Asia. Um, She wrote a piece kind of on her way out the door about a murder investigation in India in a small town, and in a larger sense, um, what it means to be an American reporter poking your head into a small town Indian murder investigation. Um, I thought it was really incredible, and... You know, there aren't that many foreign bureaus anymore. It's a less common job than it was uh, in years past. So um, I wanted to talk to someone who had been um, doing it for a while. She was previously uh, a reporter for the New York Times in Russia, and she is now moving on um, to uh, work from London. So Yeah, and that last piece was incredible. She's done a series of pieces over the last couple of years that are just those big blowout stories about women in India or this one about the murder in India that you kind of have to gear up to read because they're tough. And this one was so interesting because she really talked about what it means to be that person for the New York Times informing people and about a region. A- absolutely. And, and a region that has the same density of stories 
as the United States does, but only gets a few A1 stories every year in the New York Times. You really only, you really have to pick and choose um, what narratives you want to pursue. So I highly recommend this one. Uh, hey, Evan. Yes, Aaron. I understand that you're going to the Decatur Book Festival. Well, soon. where did you hear that? Uh, I think I, re- I think I heard about it on a podcast. Uh, listeners, regular listeners will probably have tired a little bit of hearing us talk about the Decatur no, Book Festival. No, no, surely not. But it is the last week where we are letting you know that we will be there. We've brought a collection of authors to the festival, uh, sponsored by MailChimp, and we also have a list up at readthissummer.com. It really is a great collection of books, all of which were published in the last year or so. Go check them out. Buy one, read one. If you're in the neighborhood, come by and see us at the festival. And I think it um, it speaks uh, a lot about MailChimp that they make things like this festival and this show possible. Uh, repay the favor when you need to send some emails uh, for your business or your project or your church or your literary group. Do it with MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Ellen Berry. Hello, Ellen Berry. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, where are you now? I'm in Ringe, New Hampshire. It's southwestern New Hampshire, right on the Massachusetts border. And you are, uh, as I understand it, departing India as the New York Times' uh, South Asia Bureau Chief and will become the London Chief uh, shortly. Yes, I'm between assignments, which is sort of like floating in space. <laughs> Very strange feeling. How long is your uh, gap? It's three weeks. In fact, we're flying to London tomorrow, but actually our possessions just <laughs> arrived in London where my husband is presently unpacking them. And New Hampshire is just a way station that you stop every few years for three weeks? New Hampshire is uh, it's, it's a log cabin in, uh, on a lake, which is sort of like a deep swamp, uh, where my dad was a foreign service officer, and we always spent our summers in this little cabin, um, which it was in some ways kind of understimulating, but now I go back every summer. Does that mean that you lived internationally when you were a kid? Yes. Where? Mostly former Soviet Union. Uh, Bulgaria and Yugoslavia and Moscow. And this was during the Soviet and Soviet satellite period. Yes, although actually, like a lot of Foreign Service families, I we spent at least half of our time in the U.S. And so I grew up in D.C. in that area for much of my much of my conscious <laughs> life. But my dad was a cold warrior um, for basically all of his career. Did that influence uh, your desire to become a journalist? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, it always felt a little bit like what he did was very close to journalism. And because we lived in other countries, it never seemed outlandish to just pick up and go somewhere else. I mean, aside from which, when I graduated from college, my parents weren't in the state, so I didn't have too many options, so I moved to Russia. <laughs> And what did you do when you showed up in Russia with a uh, American undergraduate degree? So that was 1993, and it was, in fact, a very kind of fertile time for English language publications. I think there was a big advertising market, 
and a lot of interest in this sort of opening market. There were a lot of kind of treasure hunters who moved to Moscow in the early 90s. And quite a few of them were 22, like me. So I initially, I initially was given an internship at a publication called the Moscow Guardian, which folded very soon after my arrival. And, and then I ended up working at the Moscow Times, which was a fantastic paper that at that point was really kind of crammed with all kinds of unorthodox talent, mostly mostly Russophiles, you know, young Russophiles who had moved to Russia to teach English or to just poke around or in some cases in hopes of opening a casino or making their fortune. But um, but a lot of people turned into journalists during that period because all of a sudden you were right out there reporting more or less on the same things that the foreign correspondents for big publications were were doing. So it was a very exciting time. I'm a um, somewhat of a nerd for certain uh, strains of long-form journalism, and there's a Vanity Fair story about the English-language newspaper that Matt Taibbi and I, I believe Mark Ames were running in Moscow at the time. It's called The Exile. Did you ever yep. cross paths? I, I can't imagine there's that many people that you would not have met everyone. Yeah, no, we all crossed paths, and Matt Taibbi, I think, covered basketball or something <laughs> for the for the Moscow Times. He he wrote for the Moscow Times a few yeah. times before the exile became a going concern. And yeah, they were the young they were the young Turks. Um and in some cases sort of flamingly talented, in some cases, you know, sadly mediocre, but <laughs> often you know, often surprising. Um, yeah. No, it was a, it was a really exciting time. Actually, you know, because I I then lived in Russia 10 years later, I felt a little bit I felt a little bit sorry that I didn't see how bad the kind of breach, how bad the what was happening during the early 1990s, which was very exciting to us as western observers, was also just an enormous collapse of expectations. Yeah. Um which I then found myself covering the Putin era, and it felt like a very unbroken line from that sense of kind of hysteria and fear and disappointment that was the kind of undercurrent as all these fortune hunters and casinos and Wild West capitalism was blossoming in Moscow. There was something much deeper happening. Yeah, that article made it sound really like pretty fun. What is it like being in a climate like that, that has that Wild West gold rush element, yet there are like big, pretty important things happening also? Um, what's it that like to experience as a reporter? So I think it was maybe a little bit different for the Western men than it was for Western women landing there. Because, Almost certainly. Um, yeah. And that was a big part of the story of the exile. I mean, it was a sort of big wholesale market of beauty for money and opportunity. People wanted to get to Europe or the United States, or they wanted some, I don't know, porthole out, and marriage and romance was one way to do that. So I think if you were 22 and coming from 
a decent liberal arts college, you landed in Moscow and suddenly realized that you were far more interesting to women than you had ever been uh, <laughs> before. Yeah. Um, so, so there was that aspect to it, which was wild and crazy. And then, aside from that, every time you left your house, you passed a long row of people, especially old people, selling everything they had. Outside the metros, they would just be sitting in rows, and they would have old shoes or teacups, and they would sit on the sidewalk trying to sell what they had. And that, and that became so commonplace that you almost stopped seeing it. And all of that kind of turmoil reached some kind of apex in October of 1993 when, when there was a, a putsch attempt and Yeltsin fired on the White House. And all of the things that had seemed sort of fun and interesting to watch suddenly suddenly turned a corner and seemed very dangerous and scary. And I remember that day really vividly watching an old lady in her 70s um, actually hanging on to a tree. There were crowds in the streets. It was unclear what was going to happen next. And I remember this old lady hanging on to a tree and saying, Fascism ni idiot which means fascism will not prevail, as if this was somehow the middle of World War II. It gave me, and I was extremely stupid at that point in my life, it gave me just a sense of how much insecurity, how much uncertainty, and how much trauma was still there under the surface. And at what point did you feel like it was time for you to go? I stayed for um, two and a half years, and I think at that point I wanted to to see if I could get a journalism job in the United States. I mean, in a way, Russia was a was a much more compelling story, but I missed my family, and, and I went home. And you came back about 10 years later and became, or actually more than 10 years, became the um, New York Times bureau chief there. I arrived not as the bureau chief, but oh, as a correspondent. As a correspondent. Um, when you came back at that point, and you had been the Atlanta bureau chief. What had you learned about like telling the big story of a place? When you end up in somewhere like Russia or India and you're asked to tell the story of a country that, you know, in the case of India, has one of the largest populations in the world, and you're supposed to boil that all down for the New York Times reader, how does that make you think about the story? And, and how does that compare to your experiences somewhere like Atlanta, that's, you know, at least population-wise, a lot less people to cover, really. Right. So that's a good question. It's um, it's terrifying to suddenly be the kind of oracular voice of authority in a place where you are still a stranger. Yeah. And, of course, we are always strangers, you know, no matter how much time and how much area expertise we acquire. And it is also... A kind of skill. And I think that especially 10 or 15 years ago, a kind of characteristic oracular voice of the foreign correspondent that was part of the kind of tradecraft of being a foreign correspondent, that you assumed that confidence to try and sort of really clarify, you know, the thicket of confusing and nuanced and contradictory information that you get about foreign conflicts. It was hard. I think the only way I managed to do it 
fortunately, I had a few years just to go around and do reporting in Russia before I was called upon to write those pieces that sort of, you know, like the bobbing head of the Wizard of Oz tells you how it is. And it took a long time for me to have the confidence to do that. I think what you fall back on is that being a reporter, whether you're in, you know, northern New England or or the Deep South or, or wherever, it's always the same. Like, it's always the same job. You go out, you find some kind of narrative that illuminates a theme, and you report until you can't report anymore, and then you sit down and try and write it. And I suppose no matter how bewildering the landscape is, you can just do that if you're careful. And to me, learning India in particular, because I had very little background, that was the only way I could have done it, is just by going out and taking one bite at the apple and repeating that cycle for two or three years. Hey, I want to tell you about our sponsor this week, Of A Kind. Uh, Of A Kind has a pretty unique concept. They take exciting new designers and sell their pieces and stuff like fashion, home, beauty, office supplies, but they also share the stories behind these pieces. It's a unique venue to find beautiful things to bring into your home. Uh, The website has featured over 350 of America's most promising new makers over the past seven years. It's run by two women who've been friends for 15 years. They run a really excellent newsletter called 10 Things that has featured writers who've been on the show like Alice Gregory and Mala Young. Um, I really recommend checking it out. You can go to ofakind.com slash longform where you'll get 20% off your order of $50 or more until October 15th by using the code longform. Everything they have on there could make a great gift. The pieces are changing constantly. So if you're thinking of bringing some art or design into your home, I encourage you to check it out. Again, ofakind.com slash longform and you'll get 20% off your order of $50 or more until October 15th with the code LONGFORM. Thank you, of a kind. Support for this show also comes from Audible. They have an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio show, news, comedy, and more from the leading publishers, broadcasters, and entertainment players in the game. What can I say about Audible? They are simply the best place to listen to audiobooks, The reason for that is that you can take your books anywhere, anytime, anywhere, on any device, including iPhone, iPad, Android, Amazon Fire, and Windows Phone, because it's not a streaming or rental service. You own your books. It's the Great Listen Guarantee. If you don't like your title, you can swap it out for a new one. I like to engage with Audible when I want to change gears. I read all day for this show and for other work. When I want to relax with some fiction, I will put it on as an audiobook right now. Full disclosure, I am uh, listening to the fantasy novel The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Uh, find a book you like and you'll get it for free with a 30-day free trial if you go to audible.com slash longform. Again, that's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash longform for a free audio book with your 30-day trial and you'll be supporting the show thank you audible the final piece that you published about your time in india came out last week the title is how to get away with murder in small town india which is a great title and catchy although the article is both the story of this domestic violence beating death in public in India and 
I read it also as a um, epilogue to your time as that oracular voice, or maybe even a questioning of what it means to have that oracular voice and to be a reporter in a very different place. Tell me about what you were thinking about when you wrote this piece and, and what you wanted to achieve. Well, every time you leave a beat, it's and this is something that I think as foreign correspondents we rarely communicate to our readers, but it's you're walking away from a story which has really been your whole life for four or five years, and it's hard to walk away. I mean, some people go for an assignment and get married and become part of that country and stay, but the majority of us live a story for a certain number of years, and then and then we just turn our backs on it and don't return to that kind of depth of engagement. With and, the place. and that's by design, right? I mean, we had uh, Jeffrey Gettleman was on this show fairly recently, and he's leaving Africa to go take over in India. You're moving to London. It seems like the system, there's some logic behind this arrangement. Yes. I think that there's always some kind of continuum between area expertise and what we sometimes term fresh eyes, which means the ability to see stories or see trends that if you were living in a place, you might not even be able to recognize anymore. So this is the kind of cycle that we go through, and it's certainly the philosophy, I think, of our desk to move us around regularly and get the sort of benefit of that kind of novelty. I think, by the way, that that's changing in the industry overall. I think the emphasis on area expertise and language skills and contacts is increasing, especially in those parts of the world that are that are really important news beats. You know, I just don't think we would assign reporters to the Middle East without language, and yeah. the same is true in China. But then there are other beats where we're less intensive about our coverage and so we are looking for a voice, looking for an interpreter. And I suppose that India is one of those places. And when you arrived, did you speak any Hindi? What? what it's kind of hard for me to imagine in a two and a half, three year span, how you hmm. pick up all the skills you need to do this job and then also be able to walk away from them. Yeah, it's so in Russia, I had, I spoke some Russian before I got there because I studied it in college. And then they also gave us language training before Russia. In India, that's not the case, in part because I think historically, much of your kind of interface with the intelligentsia and ruling class, both oligarchic and government, is in English. And my Hindi never got anywhere as a result. I sort of hit the ground running, and I never really was able to sort of set aside the time to study, and I, I regret that. On the other hand, the reason, I mean, every single foreign correspondent you read in the New York Times is also benefiting enormously from translators and fixers who are usually quite accomplished journalists in and of themselves, who give us all kinds of access to confidence and information and the kind of underwater story that a foreigner would never see. So I wouldn't work without an interpreter in a place like India, even if I spoke perfect Hindi. Right. Um, 
because that person is like your secondary face. Like that's the person who gains the confidence in many cases of the people that you really need to talk to. So in India, we had two people, two journalists that I worked with all the time, Suhasini Raj and Hari Kumar. And I don't know, you sort of can't underestimate the contribution of those people. This is the final story. There's a couple pretty indelible scenes in it. You go see this politician in this small town that you've been writing about, and you say goodbye to him, and he's peppering you with questions. Why Why did the British leave India? How much money do you make? Which is just like a hilarious question to ask an American journalist, <laughs> I have to say right now. <laughs> much less than you might think. But um, later in the story, I think you're talking to maybe a constable, and he says, this is the trick that foreign countries like yours are playing. You will write something, people will read what you write, and they will say, this country will only progress after 100 years. And you say, I had a degree of sympathy for the constable on his last point. I read this article, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, as something of a referendum for some of your experiences reporting from India and the very proposition of being an American reporter reporting from India and what sort of a relationship you really could have to a story like this, uh, this woman who was murdered and it was covered up and people have kind of just moved on. Tell me about that part of the story. Sure. So I have a particular fixation on an essay by George Orwell called Shooting an Elephant, which I think is one of the best and kind of tightest and most perfect essays I've ever read. And the essay is about being an agent of a colonial power. It's an essay that starts out almost like agonizingly slowly. He's sort of presenting an idea. And the idea is that no matter how much you may dislike the position of being an agent of a colonial power, no matter how much you may reject it, that when you're in that position, you cannot help inadvertently becoming a kind of caricature of the worst iteration, of the worst kind of colonial cartoon, you know, that it just, it happens to you. And then he kind of launches from this very slow beginning into a really very tight, compact economical story, which is about how he was in Burma serving as, uh, I don't know, an MP or something for the British Raj, and a crowd of villagers asked him to come kill an elephant which had just stomped on a farmer. And he tells a story about his great reluctance to kill the elephant, but that, you know, as each minute passed, it became more and more inevitable that he would have to do this thing, which he considered to be brutal and appalling. I love this essay, and I had been reading it a lot before I got this assignment. And so I was thinking a little bit about, you know, this is what the readers never have access to, which is the other part of the reporting. Yeah. Every time I go into some, you know, isolated little town, I am the biggest thing that has happened <laughs> there, you know, in the last three months. Yeah. First of all, they all think I'm like Edwina Mountbatten because they, they know a great deal about the British period and they don't, they haven't ever had a white person come in. So you almost have to like wade your way through all of that Heisenberg principle, all of the, all of the reaction that you cause just by walking in. 
Um, it has. And, it's even shocking as a reader when I picked up the New York Times and I was reading this story from on the A1. The minute you broke the fourth wall, like, and the right. like, constable was like, "Why are you even doing this? Who cares?" Like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, "Whoa!" Like, people don't do this in the video game I normally play in journalism. Everyone right. like stays in character. It, it's a little <laughs> shocking to realize, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that the journalist is a spectacle. Well, I'm a little surprised at the reaction that the story has gotten, to be honest. And I think that the reason is that fourth wall point you just made, which is that people don't expect a first-person voice from a New York Times correspondent. We have assumed a posture of disembodied authority for Mm -hmm. so many decades. I always have this sort of imaginary idea of a floating man in suspenders, you know, telling us what to think about all of the far-flung conflicts in the world. So understanding that each of us has our own manner, each of us has our own way of reporting, and that we may see the same conflict in very different ways. I mean, successive journalists in any of our bureaus have told the story differently. But I can't emphasize enough the fact that the rules are changing, and that is to the credit of our editors who are telling us that we should not be afraid to do our job differently now. So we had had a different story that you wrote on Long Form last year that was about women in this village trying to join the workforce and going to these meat um, slaughtering factories and getting involved in this right. dispute with the local politicians and and men it's who disapproved. And then I was way. like, oh, it's the same village. Like I was it's like looking through. It's the same village because I didn't even notice until I was like, wait. Is there is Ja Rudin like a really popular name or is this the same character? No, no, no. So, it's the same village. So it's an amazing, I mean, you, in a daily newspaper, you don't get that kind of a callback. There's no flag that says this is the same village as the other one. But right. to take those two stories, if, if you read them back to back, the second time when you're there and you're saying goodbye and people are questioning your motives and also just you're, it seems like, reflecting on on your time as the oracular voice, it means a lot to know these are the same people and they've seen her before. And the question that's brought up when a white woman is not investigating her first story about this village, but her second, and what something like that means, like how much time did you spend in this village? So... The only reason I could do this last piece is because I had logged so much time there a couple years ago. It seems like everyone's attitude uh, is like, oh, you again. Yeah, exactly. I was extremely boring, (laughs) a very boring person by that point. Um, The first time I think I went back, I don't know, when you're trying to cover a narrative, you have to wait for human lives to change. And that is often an unpredictable process. So I think I went back for eight or ten visits waiting for the situation to resolve itself. And each visit was three or four days, and each day I would spend four or five hours just hanging around, and then I would go back and type my notes. So it was a huge investment of time. I knew everyone in that village, and they were completely initially very perplexed as to why I spent so much time with them, and then they stopped asking because it was just a fact of life. And um, 
But there was a real struggle going on over this question of whether women should be allowed to earn money. Yeah. And in fact, there was an end to that story. And, and when the story ended, I stopped coming. And I think they understood that. They said, you know, our, your story is finished now. You were also covering the Modi campaign during this period. This was after Modi was after already Modi. the okay. prime minister. Yeah. So you're, you've covered the Modi campaign, totally different class totally different. I mean, the people in this village are part of a ethnic group called the Nats. Is that right? Mm. And I'm assuming you're interacting with political reporters in India. Um, you were based in Delhi during this time? Yes. The people that you come across, you know, being part of the expatriate class in Delhi, what do they think about all this time you're spending in uh, Pipli Kara village? Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, you should ask them. I'm sure they thought it was very peculiar. I mean, yeah. the amount of time um, reporters spend in rural India, I would argue, is is far too little. Seventy percent of Indians live in villages, but it's not so easy to write from villages because there's usually not, you know, what we would describe as news coming yeah. out of them. So you usually go there looking for a public health story or looking for a demographic story. Um, What's that yeah, like no, when you're it was, fishing? It was, like when you're like you going there. Like, you just feel like you're. You feel like time is just passing through your fingers. It's, <laughs> it's strange because, of course, like in in newspapers, time is the coin of the realm. Like you don't you don't want to spend five times more time than necessary on any story. You know, I spent the first fifteen years of my career really writing writing fast, and so you have to almost lose track of time. When someone says something like, you're going to write about this and we're going to look bad, or you're speaking to the local politician who you seem friendly with, but if there is any resolution to the mystery of how to get away with murder in small town India, it's pay off a local politician to make it go away. What are the, I mean, what's the stakes for all of these people? When, it, when you're basically poking your head in somewhere and Clearly, people don't seem too threatened by you, but they're kind of mm -hmm. more like, my stake in this is either negative or neutral. Like, how right. do you make them see any positive in talking to you? Huh. So, obviously, this is the sort of question I'm trying to cope with a little bit in the story. Um, sure. Look, I think that there were a lot of people in that village who weren't satisfied by the resolution of that woman's death. Mm. I spoke to enough of them to know that it didn't sit right with a lot of people. They weren't the people who were in charge of the community. And I think that it's probably something even to be able to say to anyone who's asking you in a serious way, that didn't sit right with me. Gosh, I mean, I think like we all have some desire to just put that out there, even if you know that it's not going to change the reality. I mean, as a reporter, you give people that opportunity yeah. to put it on the record. And I do think that that matters, especially to those who are the weakest in the society. So that's not trivial. I have another question about something that really stuck with me when mm. I read the story was you described the idea of justice in India. And you've written about mm. the justice system in Russia also right. as people reaching a point where they have to accept that justice is doled out 
amongst groups rather yep. than individuals. And that no matter how you try to contort or design the justice system, that people's view of justice is group justice. But I, I'm curious when, when you've concluded that groups are this important unit to understanding India, what are the challenges? Like, I always feel like journalism is best at representing the individual. You know, there's this power and the, the unvarnished quote and letting mm. people speak for themselves. But when speaking for yourself is really speaking for a group, how do you deal with that as a reporter? Well, I mean, I suppose you have to understand that we think of rights I think of rights as an American in terms of individual rights. I don't think of them in terms of collective rights. And one of the most fabulous things about India is watching the way the democratic system has survived and how robust it is and, and how well it works in some cases, that because people need small vote banks, as they're called, that's all kinds of disenfranchised ethnic groups have gotten privileges in exchange for votes that have, in fact, lifted them up. And there is a sense in which that works very well. But I, it, It's a um, different idea of rights than we have in America and a different idea of democracy than we have in America, sort of coexisting absolutely. simultaneously. In, you could almost say it's a democracy of groups rather than a democracy of citizens. And I'm sure that there are many people that would argue with this. And, it's, sure. you know, it's an argument that has merit. That's like, again, that was a very sweeping statement that I made that I'm sure a lot of people could contest. But well, I believe well you're not uh, saying it as like a political reporter. You're saying that to understand this murder mm, that went unpunished mm, in this village, mm, you have to mm, begin with the baseline assumptions that everyone is making about justice which is that Mm. if justice were even going to be served for this murder, it would be a form of group justice. And that is evident in the way that people talk about, well, we have to do, you know, her kids. The minute people start talking about what to do, it's about a larger group and its effect on a larger group. No one is just saying we need to do this for this murdered woman. Right. It was difficult for me to find anyone who wanted to speak up for her. And I had to, her family was actually quite a distance away, and it was a huge commitment of time to go and see her mother. And I sort of went there with this kind of hope from a narrative perspective that the mother would say, they bullied me into it, he should be in jail, and, you know, that would have perhaps worked better for the story. But when I got there, the mother, you know, steadfastly again and again said, look, in the end, it was better for all of us not to create a breach within the community. And it was particularly better for the kids. And, of course, as a journalist, you're trying to work up a head of steam and and you have some sense of, of why you're doing all this. And when I sat there with the mother, you know, she honestly said that like harmony in our within our group is just more important than the resolution of an act of violence. Harmony is more important. And, and you have to give some credit to that view. When you decided that your focus across your time in India spread over this two or three years was going to be women and particularly how they sought entry into the workforce, how they sought entry into rights uh, from the justice Hmm. system. Tell me about 
what led you to focus your time on that? And also, are you thinking about how an American or international audience is going to read this stuff? Are issues of feminism intended to connect with Western audiences? This is an interesting question. When I um, got the assignment, it was right after this really uh, terrible rape in Delhi. Oh, yeah. Um, of a young woman who had been gang raped and, and ultimately died of her injuries. Which was the um, biggest story and, that came out of India that year, probably. Exactly. And so I had that kind of installed in my mind on my arrival that, you know, looking at violence against women would be something worth spending a few years on. But after writing about some rapes, I ended up thinking that that was not really the story that that mattered to me. You know, violence, as I note in the piece that we're talking about, violence is really, it almost lends itself to narrative, journalism and documentary film and so forth. It's gripping and it's uh, scary and it grabs you by the, you know, viscera. But I actually ended up thinking that the problem that I saw more was lack of access to public spaces, that women weren't encouraged to fill the marketplaces and to be in public places. And the story of rape, which was a a national narrative, was in some cases used to discourage them from expanding their perimeter and going into those public spaces and being present. In much of North India, you can go through towns and not see any woman in the market. So in a way, I wanted to write the flip side of that story, which is why why are they inside? Why aren't they filling the public spaces and making them therefore safer for women? On top of which, I think if you look at, I mean, India is an economic story. It's going to be the world's largest economy in a few decades. It's going to be the world's largest country in a few decades. And the fact that as India becomes richer, women are working less is quite arresting, and it's really important. And I think it can be turned around if the government puts its head to the problem. So changing gears, you show up in London next week. You're in the midst of Brexit, a really strange story that no one really knows what's going to happen. Have you already started thinking about it? You know, I think I'll have to report for a while before... Yeah. I can make a thesis statement. But but obviously, yes, and I've been kind of studying the work of my predecessors, many of whom are um, frighteningly authoritative and competent. Um, but no, I have to find my way by going out and reporting. What's it like leaving someplace like Delhi, going someplace like London? Like, So you, you live there with your husband, Does he have mobile work? How do you manage a a life like this? He does mostly have mobile work, and I have two kids who have never lived in the United States. Um, Wow. How old are your kids? They're uh, nine and seven, and they have only lived in Russia and India, and I sort of like to joke that they've never lived any place where people stopped at red lights. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think in some ways life is going to be easier, but one thing about Asia is you never lose that sense that you're part of the rising world, that people, that expectations are rising and that the economy is growing and going back west where everyone is so much richer, but where expectations are contracting and that sort of contraction is such a bitter pill. So I think that um, 
that wage stagnation in the sense of generation on generation, is your life going to be better than your parents and your grandparents? I think in the West, this is a real crisis. Do you see London as another three-year stint or... I think something like that. I, You know, we're moving a lot of our... I mean, it used to be that our entire foreign desk was based in New York. All all of our editors were in New York, but there's been this, like, really fast dispersal of our operations so that now a very large group of our most important editors are in Hong Kong, and then another very large group is in London. So we now have a an office in London that I think it has 100 people in it. So it will be, I'm sure, one of the hubs of our foreign coverage from now into perpetuity, you know, which means that presumably there are quite a few different jobs that I might conceivably do there. Well, um, I wish you very good luck uh, at your uh, new posting. Thank you. And uh, hopefully I'll uh, check in in a few years and you can give me the uh, the Brexit story because I think it's going to be okay. I think it's going to be a pretty weird story. Yeah, I think so too. Um, well, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our associate producer, Courtney Harrell. Uh, thanks to MailChimp and to Of A Kind for sponsoring this show. Long Form publishes a new interview with a nonfiction writer or documentarian or podcaster or what have you every Wednesday. Uh, please tune in, review us on iTunes, and tell your friends. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.